Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today I am joined by Larissa Grolemond from the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles. Larissa is the assistant curator on the Getty's Book of Beasts, the Bestiary in the Medieval World exhibition, which runs until August 18th at the Getty Center. A bestiary is an encyclopedia of animals, both real and mythical. These books are extremely popular in Europe in the Middle Ages, often featuring beautiful illuminated illustrations of everything from common hunting dogs to unicorns and whales as big as islands. So, welcome Larissa. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. I kept wanting to say bestiary because it's all to do with beasts. Yeah, definitely. So um, we have taken to saying bestiary um, because the first line of the bestiary refers to the text as bestiarium. So we like to say that we're sticking pretty close to the Latin. Right, and I thought it was a word of Latin origin. Anyway, onwards. So let's start with at the very, very beginning. What was the purpose of a bestiary? And who was going to be the read the audience? Who was going to read them? Unfortunately, we have very little evidence of the original commissioning and the circumstances of the creation of many of the first bestiaries. We know that um, bestiaries were really popular in England in the 13th century in particular. That's when we see kind of the, the highest concentration of them being created. And we think that they were probably made in monastic contexts for the education of monks originally. There's some evidence that um, bestiary material was used in sermons, and so many people would have heard the bestiary stories through the oral tradition and come across the images in works of art that were made for the church, uh, etc., but really outside the manuscript context. And the purpose of a bestiary is an interesting question uh, because they were really devotional texts. So we often describe bestiaries as something like an encyclopedia, but the word encyclopedia has really different connotations today than it did in the Middle Ages. So um, rather than describing the characteristics and habits and habitats and and eating habits of these animals in a really scientific way the way that we might expect an encyclopedia to do, bestiaries really put animals within the context of a Christian worldview. So every animal was thought to have been created by God at the beginning of time and had certain behaviors and characteristics put in them by God. And so all of the stories are really seen as symbols and allegories for Christian truths. So when you say devotional, a devotional text, does that mean it was informational or it was to help people worship, worship the Lord? Both. I mean, I really think that the uh, the bestiary is one of the most complete and complex uh, examples of animal information that we have from the Middle Ages. So certainly this was a book uh, through which many medieval viewers were learning about animals. And at the same time, yes, the stories, I think, are essentially made to make Christological truths, these really kind of complex theological concepts like the incarnation and the resurrection, really memorable and really accessible for the average medieval viewer. So if you can have this really complex theological story and put it in the context of uh, an engaging lion or a whale or something like that, those are the kinds of images that really stick with people. So who wrote them and who illustrated them? 
Um, also an interesting question. So we know, again, that they were originally created in monasteries, and so it would have been uh, monastic artists for a monastic audience of monastic readers. Um, and eventually, we think that um, the bestiary's stories and its images become so widespread and so popular um, that they are eventually created for secular people as well. So there is some evidence that very luxurious bestiaries were created outside of the religious context, but certainly would have been um, read and and treasured by their owners. Um, so eventually, I mean, the the sort of core text of the bestiary uh, is Latin, and many of the most popular bestiaries that we know from the 13th century are in Latin. Um, the bestiary text eventually gets translated into a wide variety of vernacular languages, chief among them French, and so the way that the bestiary kind of morphs over time is that these translations really become popular with a courtly audience in the later Middle Ages, and that's one of the ways that the bestiary stories continue throughout the Middle Ages. So when the early bestiaries were being created, wh where were the writers getting their information from? That's a good question. So the uh, the core text of the bestiary actually has its origins in a second century text that's called the Physiologus, which simply means in Greek, the naturalist. Um, and that text was originally written in Greek, and it was a Christian text uh, from its beginnings. And included in this text were about 40 animals, so a relatively small number of animals. Uh, as, um, the, as time goes by, um, that text gets accreted to it a variety of other kinds of texts. So chief among them is Isidore of Seville, who's known as the great encyclopedist um, of the early Middle Ages. And so information from Isidore gets added into the Physiologus, as well as Pliny and Salinas and sort of other classical writers, other medieval writers. And it really becomes the text that we know as the bestiary around the late 12th century. Um, and what's really interesting, I think, about the bestiary is that it's a non-standard text. So there may be anywhere from 40 to around 200 animals included in the bestiary, but we call all of these manuscripts bestiaries, although there is quite a variety of different kinds of texts that are included. So as they were being developed, I presume that copying and layering on someone else's work was a common practice, just like with other Absolutely, types of Absolutely, yeah. So we actually have um, quite a few examples of direct copying in the bestiary tradition, which is quite, um, quite interesting for the study of medieval manuscripts, since we often don't have such closely related copies. And um, I think what's interesting about the bestiary text, because it is non-standard, it's very flexible as well. So uh, a copyist can take bits and pieces from maybe several different manuscripts and recombine them. Um, and so the text varies actually quite a bit, manuscript to manuscript, although the core stories for each animal do remain pretty consistent. Right. So I know there are no lions in Northumbria or Cornwall. <laughs> you know, I've been there. I, I can assure you that is true. So how on earth did people uh, who had never seen these creatures create this, uh, well, beautiful content? Yeah, this is, I think, one of the most interesting parts of the bestiary illumination tradition specifically, because as you said in the beginning, uh, bestiaries include everything from animals that would have been quite familiar to medieval European audiences, like dogs and cows and these kinds of domesticated animals, um, as well as what we think of as exotic animals like lions and elephants, and then mythical animals like unicorns and griffins. And what's interesting, I think, about um, the way that images are being passed down is that many artists are working, of course, from exemplars, so they're looking at previous images of lions or elephants uh, or what have you. 
And um, what's also happening is that artists are introducing a lot of their own creativity. So the bestiary stories actually don't often include a physical description of the animal. And so when it comes to picking a color or picking a pattern for an animal, that's really up to the artist. And so you get polka-dotted elephants and polka-dotted unicorns and blue lions and all of these kinds of things. Um, and I think what, what is really cool about the bestiary tradition is that it really allows for a lot of artistic inventiveness to be added in and then kind of reformed and reshaped as the text and the images get copied. And so there's often kind of new introductions of elements of the animals into the images themselves, although the text doesn't change that much. So what do these books say about the, the Middle Ages? I think this is, this is a, a really kind of popular book uh, about, of the Middle Ages, and because it kind of sits on the line between devotional and entertainment um, kind of book, it does say a lot about the willingness of the medieval mind to accept things that maybe strike us as fantastical or sort of untruthful. Um, so we always like to say that um, it wasn't that people in the Middle Ages um, were naive about the kinds of animals that might exist throughout the world, but they also lacked information and access to information in the same way that we have it today. So we actually have a, a narwhal tusk in the exhibition that um, comes from a church treasury where it was kept as a unicorn horn. And so you do have these like little pockets of physical proof um, for these kinds of kinds of mythical creatures that I think would have been quite convincing and quite persuasive to a medieval mind. But the idea is that the bestiary to believe in the bestiary, it doesn't matter so much what's real and what's not. That's not the point of the text. Um, the point is to reveal the wonder of God's creation and to talk about divine, um, divine creation in the world, um, the idea that all parts of the natural world are part of this larger system. I think it's something that's really important to understanding what the bestiary says about the Middle Ages. And I do think it points to a great uh, capacity for wonder and a great capacity for entertainment and engaging images. I mean, these are the kinds of images that would stick with people throughout their entire lives. Um, and one of the main ideas of the exhibition is that not only do you find these images in bestiaries in the manuscript context, but these images and stories become so popular and so widespread that they're identifiable immediately when they're on a plate or a capital or in a tapestry or in ivories. And so these are the kinds of stories, I think, that would have been um, familiar and kind of um, comforting to people throughout the Middle Ages. So they're a little like the childhood stories that we learn today, and we, the way we sort of keep those with us as we move through our lives. Okay. So back to the Gettys ex exhibition. Um, what are a couple of highlights for you from the things that people can see there? In terms of objects? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I mentioned the, the narwhal tusk uh, slash unicorn horn. That's one of my favorites. Uh, it was actually kept in a church treasury, and it's carved. It was probably one of a pair that was used as a processional candlestick, and I love to see people encounter it in the galleries because there's this kind of debate over narwhal versus unicorn, which I think is great. How long is the, um, uh, the, the tusk or the, it's the, about, the horn? I want to say it's about three feet. Um, it's been slightly broken off at the top, um, but it's one of those really interesting survivals, I think, of a, um, a medieval object that's been repurposed and kind of given a new life in terms of the, the context that it's been given. Yeah, I can, I can totally understand how that can, can uh, be assumed to be a connection with a unicorn. It makes total sense. 
Absolutely, because what's more likely, a small horse with a single horn or a giant sea creature with a single horn? I feel like the, you know, the, the horse is so much more believable <laughs> as yes. a creature. Yes. Um, and, of course, there are a number of extremely beautiful bestiary manuscripts in the exhibition. Um, the exhibition actually gathers together 26 of the 62 surviving Latin illuminated bestiaries in the world, so it's quite a high concentration of really lovely, really beautiful manuscripts. Um, we have the Aberdeen bestiary um, on view at the moment, which is, um, as we like to say, if you go to um, Wikipedia and type in illuminated manuscript, you actually see a picture of the Aberdeen bestiary. So it's not just one of the most beautiful bestiaries ever created. It's one of the most beautiful illuminated manuscripts to survive from the Middle Ages. Um, and it's just a beautiful work. I mean, there's sort of saturated colors, beautiful gold leaf, and a really kind of inventive artist that's taken the animals and really given them a new, a new life in their illuminations. The, the colors of the, the books are interesting because weren't, weren't the Middle Ages also known as, as the Dark Ages as well? Is, is that, am I thinking of the wrong era? No, you're thinking of the correct era. Um, that's one of those uh, those terms that medievalists, I think, kind of bristle at sometimes because um, there are such beautiful artworks and such beautiful records of medieval thinking um, from the Middle Ages that you sort of can't help but think um, these people were living extremely um, rich lives, at least, you know, the people who had access to these um, kinds of of works, which wasn't everybody, um, but the, I think the idea that um, it's the stories which are kind of engaging and are memorable for people that I think kind of reveals a certain humanity um, of medieval people. We sort of think of them all as toiling in the fields and sort of having no joy in their lives <laughs> or anything like that, but really I think when you start to look at the best stories, you get a glimpse of how these people um, found humor in their lives, entertainment. Um, learned things, all of these kind of different aspects of, um, of life in the Middle Ages. So how, how long does it take to assemble uh, an exhibition of this nature? That's a good question. So um, my, my colleague, Beth, uh, Elizabeth Morrison, who is the senior curator of manuscripts here at the Getty uh, Museum, she's been working on this show for about eight years, I want to say. Wow. Um, since about 2007, um, I think she had the idea in her mind. Um, that's when the museum acquired the Northumberland bestiary, which was the third bestiary to be added to the Getty's collection, um, which doesn't sound like a lot, but when you think of there are only 62 left, three is actually quite a high concept concentration for a single institution. Um, and so the best area is a strength of the collection uh, in that way. And um, I came on to the project about three years ago. Um, and it really takes everyone at the museum. So uh, the curators are only one part of this much larger constellation of folks who help with every aspect of the exhibition, from um, coordinating shipping and loans um, to designing the exhibition to actually installing it and certainly um, all of our education department who, you know, put on public programming and have all of these sort of related, um, related initiatives that go along with the show. So it takes uh, a huge village of people to put together one of these shows and many, many years. So you borrowed objects from institutions around the world? Yes. Um, so we have about 115 objects in the show, and they come from 45 different lenders across the world, so many of whom are um, U.S. lenders, uh, many local California lenders, as well as international lenders. So um, we have several objects from the British Library, the Bodleian Library, several um, manuscripts come from the Bibliothèque Nationale de France, 
um, and many other any many other institutions throughout um, Europe. Excellent. Um, the books themselves, how fragile are they? That's a that's an interesting question because I think um, the the tendency is to think of manuscripts as being very ancient, very old, very fragile. Um, the manuscripts are actually in great shape. Um, these these are things that would have been kept in libraries, closed uh, without um, being exposed to light very much. So the illuminations are actually in quite beautiful shape. Um, there are a few exceptions uh, to that, but parchment is an extremely hardy kind of material, and it's actually far more durable than paper. And so many of the, the parchment pages of the manuscript are still in, in just beautiful condition. Okay. So you mentioned the Aberdeen bestiary. Yes. Um, what's the most important bestiary in terms of cultural value? Is there one or that you can oh, see? That's a tough, that's a really tough question because I think if you asked every bestiary scholar, they would all give you a different answer. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, the Aberdeen bestiary is certainly um, the star of the collection in the library, the University Library of Aber- Aberdeen, where it still lives. Um, and there, I'm, I mean, there are a number of other manuscripts in the show, which, like I said, are not just the most important bestiaries to be created, but which are some of the most important illuminated manuscripts to survive. And um, so many of these have such specific cultural context that it's hard to identify just one as being the most important. Um, Because certainly there are beautiful English examples from the 13th century, which is the place and time that we think of the bestiary being the most popular. And it's certainly the the place and time from which most bestiaries come. But there are also lovely examples like the Salvatorberg bestiary, which comes from the Wormsley Library, which is the only German bestiary to survive. And so it's quite an interesting object uh, in that way because it's unique. um, And we really don't have anything else like it. And so it's interesting to kind of compare the ones that were made in Germany, the ones that were made in northern France, to the ones that were made in England. And it's really the collection, I think, um, and having them all together that really allows for us to make these kinds of comparisons. So I think I, I watched a video on Facebook of you uh, doing a tour of the exhibition, and you were talking about unicorns and unicorns being hunted. Why would yes. people want to hunt a unicorn in the Middle Ages? So the bestiary story uh, of the unicorn talks about how the unicorn is an extremely savage beast, and um, it is highly desired because of its horn, and the horn is believed to have medicinal properties. So the bestiary story um, talks about how in order to catch this kind of very ferocious beast, in order to, to get its horn, um, you would have to place a virgin maiden in the woods, and the unicorn would be calmed by her and, you know, place his head in her lap, and then the hunters could kind of pop out from the forest where they'd been hiding and and kill the unicorn and take the horn back to the king's palace. Um, And the unicorn horn is believed to be able to... um, cure poison, so if there's contaminated water, if you dip a little unicorn horn in it, it's believed to um, decontaminate that water. Um, Later on, unicorn horns were ground up and used in all sorts of medicinal cures. Um, Of course, that's something that's actually, I think, been mapped on to the rhinoceros. Um, The rhinoceros and the unicorn kind of become conflated in the later Middle Ages. Um, Marco Polo even records going to um, to far off lands and reports seeing a unicorn, but he says, you know, it's it's not really what I expected. It's not a small white horse. It's this kind of lumpy gray thing right. um, that doesn't really look like it would be attracted to a, a virgin maiden. But there you go. 
rhinoceros horns are still believed to have these medicinal properties, and rhinoceroses are being hunted to extinction because people want their horns. Okay. Um, is there a book about bestiaries that you'd recommend? Well, I would certainly recommend the exhibition catalog for this show. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's uh, actually, I think, a, a wonderful um, addition to the scholarship because it brings together about 26 different scholars all working on bestiaries um, from different angles. So people who are working on the textual contents as well as our historians who are thinking more about um, the visual imagery uh, within bestiaries. And it's certainly the most up-to-date uh, scholarship on the bestiary. So I would recommend our catalog. And there are a number of other, um, of other books that have been sort of um, the seminal books for bestiary studies. Um, one is by Willeen Clark, um, who wrote a book called uh, A Book of Beasts. Um, and it's really a translation and examination of the bestiary tradition. Um, which is quite kind of the the place that most people go to first when they when they start looking at bestiaries, um, and there's also um, a wonderful book by Cynthia White, uh, which also looks at a particular translation of the bestiary. Um, so those are some places to start if you're interested in that. So didn't the uh, Arthurian writer T. H. White also yes, work yes. on a book um, about bestiaries? Yes, that was one of the kind of foundational texts um, for the bestiary, and I think that's how still a lot of people come to the bestiary, which is quite interesting. Right, okay. Okay. Uh, one final question, which we ask all our guests, and that is what book or books are you reading currently? That is a wonderful question. I feel like um, there are two answers to this question, and there's sort of what am I reading in terms of my, my own research and work was nonfiction. Um, but I think the more interesting answer is what am I reading for um, entertainment. And mostly I read um, dystopian fiction. <laughs> I have sort of a penchant for that. You're not so the I've been only reading. One. I've been reading a wonderful book called Red Clocks uh, by Lenny Zumas, um, which imagines a, um, a society where abortion has been completely outlawed and explores the implications of that through the experience of one particular woman. And that's just been a really wonderful book. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it's certainly very topical. Yes. Yes. Uh, okay. Thank you. Uh, so that's yeah, all, all we have time for this week. I want to give a huge thank you to Larissa Grolamond for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great pleasure. No problem. The Book of Beasts exhibition runs until August 18th at the Getty Museum in Los Angeles. Uh, the Getty is one of the great museums of North America. It's always worth a visit, and I heartily recommend it. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again soon.